Well, good morning, Milford Bible. Uh, I so wish I could be with you this morning. I really do. I can't stand the fact that we can't be with you, but the truth is, is that after two years, we have finally been uh, ravaged in our house by COVID. So uh, earlier this week, a couple of our kids began to show some symptoms, uh, very flu-like symptoms for a couple of days. And uh, thankfully it began to subside, but then two more kids and so eventually we were actually able to secure a test which came back positive which then we assumed that meant that everyone here had either been exposed or actually had covid and in the process i mean even though we've been all vaccinated and boosted and we could technically without symptoms still show up as long as we're careful sure enough last night began to experience some of the symptoms uh myself um, even though they're they're mitigated because of the vaccination uh, and the care we try to take but look guys i I want to be careful with you, and we want to show great love to be careful with one another. So I hope that you guys are doing that, that you're serving out of love uh, for one another, with one another, when it comes to um, paying attention to when you're not feeling well, um, and that out of precaution, especially for those that are immune compromised in our fellowship and with the uptick of, of a lot of cases right now, that, that you're choosing to, to mask with us. Um, as we recommended last week, and uh, but again, it's it's not a mandate, but we also don't want to soften it. We do believe that it's it's important, and we we wouldn't do it if we didn't think it would be healthy if all of us shared in that, from car to pew, and if you're able to through the singing, um, except for when you are listening to the the preaching or the reading of the word in that way. So, um, thank you for sharing that with us. And honestly, we don't want to see it as merely an inconvenience. We want to see it as an opportunity for us. Um, really to love one another and to love each other well. So with that, we're going to go ahead and dive into what this morning is about. It's about Advent, but the second one. So, you know, around this time in Christmas, usually the, the first Sunday after Christmas, I feel this urge to remind the church and to remind myself of his coming, um, his coming again. And in fact, it reminds me often of what we see at Easter, where you know, during Easter, we have this tradition in the Christian church to say, he is risen, and then the congregation would respond, he is risen indeed, and that's that antiphony that we have going back and forth. And there's part of me that feels the need to do that at this time of year, to say, he has come, he has come and then to antiphonally respond, he is coming again. But we're not going to do that. I'm not starting a tradition or anything like that, but, but I do think it's healthy for us to, to have that thought this time of year, because we do believe in the physical historical coming of Christ, that it was God in the flesh who came, okay, or God who came in the flesh, that it is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that he came still having all the attributes and nature of God, but then took on all the attributes and nature of being a man, and essentially so for our salvation. Now, part of what we're going to talk about today is that when he saved us, he saved us from the wrath to come. He saved us from, for himself, but also sparing us destruction and hell. So really what I want to do is just simply share with you some thoughts um, and preach to you uh, and, and really to myself uh, the coming of Christ. And we're not going to get into to a lot of details on uh, the nuances of that, but we are going to get into enough that I hope it spurs us on to holier um, and more evangelistically driven kind of living um, as we look forward to his coming and also feel, yes, the burden and the weight of the seriousness of what will happen when Christ returns for our family and friends who do not know him. 
because it is very serious. So with that, um, let me just go ahead and draw your attention to what we have in Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1-11, through 11, it says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, so whether we are living or we are dead, if we're in Christ, we might live with him. And then verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now really where I want to springboard is off of that very last verse where he says, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The first thing I want to talk about really this morning is the purpose of preaching on his return, which would also then be the purpose of us studying his return or looking at it if we ever do a study where we go into greater depth. And we actually will, later on this next year, as we walk through during the Sunday School Hour, we're going to walk through corporately our entire statement of faith. And we're going to take advantage of that time to say, look, this is what is central and what this actually says and what we must believe to be in fellowship with each other. But then we're also going to talk about, well, here's some more specific beliefs that I have that might be different than my brother sitting next to me in the pew, but that we can still have fellowship. In fact, with that, that means that we'll talk about potential points of disunity. But as long as they're not the primary point, there's no reason for that to be divisive. So honestly, I have seen in my ministry, not real, I shouldn't say in my ministry, but I've seen it as a minister and as a pastor for almost 30 years. I have seen along with, um, and I hate to use isms in the pulpit, but along with the division that often can come with beliefs in Calvinism versus Arminianism and more strongly free will versus more of a election and predestination, I have seen no other doctrine cause more division in the body of Christ than particular views of the second coming. So this is, this is pretty important to me, mainly because of it is, it, it is so potentially undoing of the very purpose, positively speaking, that's for when we do study it together. And what I mean by that is it can cause division when it's actually supposed to create great encouragement, which Paul says, encourage one another with these things. So we're going to look into a couple of very key aspects, I think, of this passage, but we actually have to back up a little bit into verses 13 until the end of the chapter in chapter 4. So 4, 13 and on, Paul basically says, and I'm just going to summarize it here, where he basically is encouraging the church to not fear or worry what happens to those who are in Christ who have died. Because as surely as Christ left and he came, he will come again and he will come for those and those who have died in Christ will rise first and then those of us who are living will meet him in the air. But he says this with, along with that phrase that so often we use um, in dealing with grief and certainly in a Christian funeral, I use it almost every time, that we are not those who hope as if we don't have grief. I said that totally backwards. We don't grieve as those who have no hope, okay? 
We don't grieve as those without hope. We have hope because even in the deepest grief that we possibly could have in this world, which would be the death of a loved one, that if they are in Christ, we have hope that even though we experience death now, and there's a lot of pain in that process, that there is hope that they will one day be with Christ and we will meet them again and we will be with them with him. What a great hope. So I think it's really important for us right off the bat to think about, you know, what are some of the purposes of us going through the return of Christ? To even mention it here at the back end of Christmas, so to speak. Well, the first thing I want to mention as a purpose for preaching about his return and therefore the instruction in the scriptures for his return is just that, is for comfort. 13 through 18 of chapter 4 speaks of it being comfort to Christians who are grieving the loss of loved ones. That the information itself, the sound doctrine of the fact that the dead in Christ will rise, okay, even physically, that they will be resurrected and be with him, that is of great comfort to us. That is to our joy. So that's one of the main purposes. And he even says that. That's why we, we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who are hopeless because we have that hope in Christ. But it's only for those that are in Christ. It's a very important distinction to make. But that is clearly one of the main purposes. So if you then look down again at verse 11 of chapter 5, as we encourage each other with these things, we're actually encouraging each other to think about the return of Christ so that we are comforting each other in the loss of loved ones and friends. Another reason, if you think about it in Matthew 24, it's the longest narrative that we have of Christ speaking about the return and all the things that will happen in the end times. And as much as he says things that, that so often, maybe second only to things that go on in Daniel as far as people arguing over, like contemporaries, arguing over the timing of the events and what he really meant and didn't mean. The fact is that's the purpose of Christ mentioning all the different events that are going to occur was not for the purpose of us putting together puzzle pieces to actually then predict the time. He gave us all this so that we would endure well. When he says things like when you see the temple destroyed or when you see this or that happen or you hear of a war or you actually then experience persecution or even see your brothers and sisters killed for their faith, it's not about piecing together all those different things when they seem to happen at any particular point in time. The fact is they're going to happen all along the way until Christ comes. And when they do occur, then we're to be reminded that Christ is coming. I mean, even if we don't predict the timing, the closest we actually get biblically to being encouraged to predict the timing is simply to be reminded that we are one day closer. We are one day closer. So really, these things that Christ spoke of in Matthew 24 is not to piece together the timeline. It's actually to endure because he goes on at the end and he says in that chapter, those who endure to the end will be saved. And he's not, that's not meaning that the way of real salvation is like, I'm just going to make it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that true believers, as they are persecuted, as they go through tribulation, as they go through great difficulty and trauma, they persevere to the end. We will have seasons where we fail. We will have seasons where we deny. But the true believer comes back and perseveres to the end. You don't lose your salvation. You can be proven not to ever have had it. Because you just had ease and it was culturally appeasable for you to maintain a Christian-esque kind of culture and, and a kind of social mantra around yourself. But only in the face of great resistance, even tribulation and persecution, will the true Christian actually endure. So it's actually for endurance. So it's for comfort. It's for endurance. Another reason, and, and really these last two are both out of Second Peter uh, chapter 3. 
verses 8 through 13. So if we have comfort and endurance, the next two are holy living or holiness and evangelism. And again, in summary, when Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, he says, so since we know things are going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? Holy, godly, trusting that God is bringing in the number he's going to bring in for his purposes, basically his salvation. He's going to have for himself a people. And we get to participate until he returns in sharing the gospel with all flesh. We are blinded by those who actually will choose to come to him in faith, those that he is even working in and working on. In that sense, it almost doesn't matter on those on, on what people perceive as being divisive doctrines on, on election, predestination, as opposed to free will and choice. The fact is, we know that God has to do a work because men are dead in their sins and trespasses. And the only way we know as humans that he's doing that work is not because we have secret knowledge of who's elect and who's not. It's we see repentance. We hear a confession of faith. We hear the confession that that a non-believer now believes that Christ was raised from the dead and is their only hope, only hope for salvation, and they trust in him. One of the reasons that we look at the second coming is that we know that once Christ returns, the opportunity for those without Christ to come to him is done. It's done. So we're to live holy lives, godly lives, but also evangelistic and missional lives. That's one of the reasons, two of the reasons that we have for talking about and preaching on and studying the second coming of Christ. Comfort, endurance, holiness, and evangelism. Now, I think as we look more properly at the chapter itself that we're looking at this morning in chapter 5, we need to remember that in 1 Thessalonians, that there is a promise of his return. But I really want to talk about the promises that are in a sense, associated with that return. So here's what I mean. The first one I would say is that there's a promise that it's personal and it's physical. Personal and it's physical. I mean, if you look in verses 1 through 5, he says, concerning the times and the seasons. I mean, these are actual times. He doesn't say predict them, but he says it's these things are going to be going on. There's going to be real historical events going on, real predicted and um, prophesied about events going on. This is actually going to happen. It's real, but it's also personal and it's physical. So for instance, in Matthew 24, 44, it says, Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It could not be more plain on the literal nature of this, that it's coming. You're not going to expect it, which certainly then would undermine any proposal of predicting it. But to be ready is the point. Acts 1.11 says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So at the ascension, after he has taught them at the Sea of Galilee, actually he's been with them for 40 plus days. And he's at the Sea of Galilee gathering them together. They want him to stay and establish his kingdom. And he's about to ascend. And they say, now are you going to establish your kingdom? No, I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. And we're still in that vein of church history with being those who proclaim the apostolic witness, which is the word of God, to the world. So we're proclaiming the gospel of the word of God, of Christ, as delivered to us through the apostles to the world. We're still in that vein of, of church history, so to speak. But in doing so, we have to remember that this is all very personal and physical. The angel says, why do you look at him ascending like this? Because he will come back, come back just as you see him now. And they were seeing him go. 
I mean, there were aeronautics going on and there was a physicality to his departure. There will be a physicality to his coming. But there's also this personal interaction between angel and apostle that I think is important for us on the personal level to know that, yes, he's coming for a group, but it's also for us who individually know him as individually as our Savior. That we are individually disciples. We're disciples together in the church, but we still have to own up to whether or not we're disciples individually. Because there's no, as surely as there's, you know, there can be guilt by association, there's no innocence by association. Not with a wonderful grandmother or mother not by your name being written in a family Bible. No. It's about whether or not you actually know Christ personally, trusting only in Him for salvation. So we know there's a promise that it's going to be personal. We know it's going to be physical. But we also know it's going to be visible and it's going to be triumphant. So in addition to it being physical, there is a visibility to it. And here's what I mean. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, so the next letter that Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, he says this. He says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. I mean, listen to the juxtaposition of when Christ comes. For those that are in Christ, he uses words or phrases like he'll be glorified in his saints. They'll marvel at all, there will be a marveling by all who have believed. But it's preceded by saying they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. So this gives you an idea of when Paul is talking about wrath or when he's talking about eternal destruction, he is not talking about a season of tribulation. He is saying, in juxtaposition to those who are in Christ have eternal hope and life, those who are without Christ have eternal hopelessness, suffering, and destruction. Okay, the opposite of being saved is not suffering through a lot of wars and everything on this, on this earth. No, <laughs> it is not. Now, I think it's important for us when we're speaking of the gospel that we actually do speak um, winsomely of the joys and the glories of what the gospel means and its goodness, but there should be also the warning of what's to happen if that is rejected. It is eternal suffering, eternal separation, eternal destruction. It's visible. It's not metaphorical. Revelation 1, 7, and 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. There's the visibility. Even those who pierced him, which means even those who caused his physical death. So basically, even the lost, even those who are without him, they will see. This is, there's no, nothing secret. It can be surprising, and it will be. But it's not going to be secretive. It's going to be visible, but it's also going to be triumphant. He says, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Every person who is without him will, will wail in, in the suffering that they know is to come. But then he says, even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It is triumphant. It will be triumphant. But part of that triumph is the decimation and the 
ultimate condemnation and damnation of those who are without him. But then there's also the promise of it being sudden and surprising. Uh, he does go on and say, you know, it's, it's, uh, it is that way. He's, and he, but he juxtaposes it again. If you look at verses 2 and 3, he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Okay, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains for a, a woman who's, who's about to give birth. But then he says in verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you. So the promise is, yes, it will be surprising, it will be sudden, and for the unbeliever, it will be unwelcome, it will be a surprise, it will be shocking because they have bought into, the world will have then bought into a false peace, a worldly peace, thinking that that will provide some kind of security for them. There will be false prophets that propagate this kind of falsehood, this false peace in world systems. And so therefore they'll feel a false sense of security. But guys, make no mistake. This is not just for those who are of a different political persuasion than you. This is not just for those who are in a different church. Or, guys, there are people in any particular church at any particular point in time that are banking too much, actually any at all, peace in world systems, whether it's nationalism or something else. I don't care if it's a Christian version or whatever. If your hope is for a peaceful worldly system, you are set up to be surprised. And it may be that you're exposed as not really being a true believer. Now, I know that sounds a little harsh, but the fact is he says that it's the world that will say peace, peace. Okay, it's, I remember when, I think, I think Clinton, I think it was when Clinton was president and, and there were headlines on peace and peace because it was between Palestine and Israel. And of course, then that goes away. And then, you know, just even a year or two ago, Trump had, had spent some time with both Palestine and Israel and there was again, peace, peace. And, and there's been some, uh, of course, then there's a, in a sense, a coup in Israel. And anyway, there's lots of upheaval, right? Every time you would have some of these guys on, uh, you know, Christian broadcast television like TBN, and they would be the guys that love to have the charts up on this means this in Scripture, this date, and they try to time out. It doesn't matter. They've never been right. It really doesn't matter. Uh, if they get a new headline, people eat that stuff up, and so they will run with it. But the fact is, is that when he says that people will say there's peace, peace. And it will be, in my view, uh, a hope that is placed in world systems. Politics, the mixing of religion and politics. So guys, this may not look at all what you think it's going to look like. I mean, there literally are people that believe it's all the Democrats. But there is a, a lot of deception that's going on among conservatives. There's a lot. I'm so not going to go. See, I could edit my video, but I'm not going to. But I'm not going to allow myself to go some places that probably wouldn't be most beneficial. But I will tell you, you don't have to look very far or back very far in time, like maybe even a week, and find where some claim that Christianity in America was saved by a particular president, particular perspectives. Look, guys, regardless of what you believe about policies and about particular candidates or presidents, Look, the bottom line is Christianity doesn't need saving. Doesn't. Not a bit. The gates of hell cannot prevail against um, the church, the true church. And so Democrats can't. Neither can 
alt-right nationalistic Republicans who have made it basically almost a worship event um, in our country uh, around political positions. Guys, I think they're both incredibly dangerous. And we are called to be those who actually hope for Christ alone to come. And so when he says that those who actually hear peace and they hear their false prophets and they have their false securities, he is saying those are the ones who will be surprised. But he says for those of you who are believers, you shouldn't be as surprised. This is not about Christ. When he says he comes like a thief in the night, that doesn't mean he's, he's uh, being real secretive. It doesn't mean that he's uh, doing the ninja thing and, and just sneaking around and it's, then all of a sudden pops out. And, I mean, that's not what's going on. It's about the timing of it being a surprise. I've already read where it's, phys it's physical and it's visible. Every eye will see, including the loss, that he has come back. This, there, there's no dog whistle event. This is loud and it is big and it is going to be a shock. That's what the thief in the night part means. Not that it's secretive, but that it's a surprise. And he's saying for us as Christians, even though we will marvel at the coming of Christ, who wouldn't when the king comes through the clouds? Of course we will. But the fact is, we don't have to be as surprised as those who are not looking forward to it because our hope is continually pressed towards Him. In fact, that's one of the very reasons why we pay attention to the birth pangs is that this world doesn't offer us peace. This world doesn't offer us hope. And this world cannot offer the law of salvation. Only Christ can, and He's coming. And so it should produce in us an urgency to live well and to preach and proclaim the gospel to all. So the third thing I would say, so basically just to recap real quickly, um, the purpose of preaching on his return is about comfort, endurance, holiness, evangelism. There's promises about his return. There's promises that it's personal and physical. It's visible and it's triumphant, but it's also sudden and it's surprising. But for the believer, it shouldn't be as much so because our hope continually presses into him anyway, even through the realization of great difficulty presently. The third thing I'd say is that not only do we need to understand the purpose of talking about these things and that there are promises, but there's a preparation that we're to have. And this is really takes us through the end of the chapter. There's a preparation for his return. In verses 6 through 8, he talks about there being focused living. Look at 6 through 8. So then, okay? I mean, that's, that's when it's gold for a preacher is that when you have a phrase like that, you know, oh, next point. So then, let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. As we look forward to his coming, we have to be prepared. And he says, first of all, we're to have focused living, verses 6 through 8. We need to be sober. We need to be awake. It doesn't just mean that we're not drunk with alcohol, though certainly we shouldn't be drunk with alcohol. We need to understand that you can actually be drunk and lazy with a whole lot of things. You can be overly enamored with the affections or the worry of things in this world. Okay? You can, again, find too much solace and, and because it's, what is it? It's anti-faith. We can grow weary of having to press into faith, which is assurance and evidence of things that are not seen. They're things hoped for, right? And certainly the coming of Christ. In fact, that was very much the centerpiece of some of the false teaching that was going on that Peter had to face is they were saying, well, his coming's been promised. Where is he? And they weren't prepared to answer for, I, I can't tell you. And so some would actually grow very discouraged. Maybe I missed it or maybe he isn't coming. 
So we have to understand that we have to press into faith and be reminded that in faith, right now, one day it will give way. We won't need faith anymore. It will be sight. But for now, we have to press in with faith that we trust and believe what the Word of God has had to, had to say about who we are in Him and who we will be at His coming. So he says, basically, wake up. And that word for wake up, that, that to be sober, to wake up and be sober, is to be aware, but also be aware. It's to beware of the tendency that we have to disbelieve. And so anytime the Lord allows us to go through difficulty, even like for us this week with COVID, I mean, I want so badly to have been with you during Christmas Eve. I want so badly to be with you right now. But at the same time, I have to trust that God has a purpose in allowing us to be sick, to allow me to have the the strength to even preach to you enough right now um, in the midst of some what I actually feel. And I'm so grateful to what he for, for what he's doing, but I trust that he has a reason of reminding me that I can't put, I can't bank on my flesh. I cannot bank on all things being well. I mean, you can imagine how my oldest daughter felt flying in and we didn't actually have that test until we weren't able to get that test until after she landed, got in her house. <laughs> I mean, colleges are really restrictive, and she's been able to avoid it this whole time. I mean, we all have to trust that, again, not as fatalists, but as those who trust that God has a purpose and a design in these things to remind us of His coming, that our hope is elsewhere and it's not in things in this world. So we have to wake up and remember and be aware of what's going on around us, to be alert, to pay attention to these things as we go through them, to remind us that there's still hope to come. Don't give up on faith. I think another thing, though, is to remember who you are. What does Paul say? He says, guys, you're not those of the darkness. You're of the light. So press into that. Press into what gives you illumination, which is the Word of God is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. To remember that all of our deeds will be exposed. But understand this, that God already sees you fully, knows you fully, but still loves you fully? That's crazy. Every secret, lustful thought that you would never want blasted on a screen at church or anywhere else for that matter. He already knows it all and loves you still. If you are in Christ and you have placed your faith in Him for and been drawn out of faith in a, or drawn out of your, your death and sin into faith by the work of the Holy Spirit, Trusting and believing he's forgiven you of sin. He's forgiven you of all sin. All of it. We still need to confess our sin when we do it so that our fellowship is sweet, but he does not abandon you. He's given you hope. Remember who you are. Remember you're a child of the day, not of the night. Let your sin be exposed. Confess it to your brothers so that you are reminded that my hope is still to come. Verse 8, verse 8 says simply, But since we belong to the day, being sober, put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for, the, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. That means that we're reminded, we preach the gospel to ourselves, but in preaching the gospel to ourselves, we are reminded that the way we are to live is for the gospel. That we remind ourselves of the gospel and the hope that we have in him, but we also know that we are to be alert, have faith and love and hope, and actually proclaim that gospel to others. Basically, we're reminded of the gospel regularly, which will promote in us sharing that gospel with others. 
So in that preparation for his return, we do have focused living, but we also have to understand that we are living in future hope. And that means that part of focused living is to realize that it's not here yet. Christ is not here yet. We, I, I, we do not need to get lost in the puzzle pieces of what this event means and what that event means. Guys, I can tell you, study it, do what you want to, okay? I get that, but at the same time, I can tell you biblically that there's nowhere in Scripture, even the Scripture when he says, be aware of what's going on, that it is never about putting the pieces together so that you can predict when he's coming. That promotes pride and most of the time subverts the very purpose of him saying it, which is endurance. Because what happens again and again? For those who press into the puzzle pieces and then get frustrated that whatever event they were so sure meant this, it actually doesn't mean that because the timeline's not working out, they grow discouraged. They actually can subvert the endurance of their hope and faith by pressing into something that it's clear that Scripture even says, for whatever reason, and I don't even know how it happens with the Godhead, but Christ himself doesn't know that hour in, in a realization sense. And also knowing that every time he mentions what he is pressing us into is to remind us to be ready, not to predict. Guys, in living in future hope, and he says you're delivered from wrath. That's where he starts. I mean, he says that. And this is a very... It shouldn't be a confusing phrase. It shouldn't be one that we put too much weight on in the wrong way, but here's, here's where it is. He says, verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, I, I don't know how to say it any more plainly than simply this. Wrath there does not mean the tribulation. It does not. Because if, if for any reason, the logic of what he says next, which is, but for salvation through Jesus Christ... That is clearly and inarguably about eternal salvation. He does not say a temporal period of suffering, like a seven-year tribulation, up against eternality. He is not saying, look, come to Christ for eternal salvation so that you can avoid seven really bad years. That is never articulated in the Scriptures, ever. Every time that wrath and eternal destruction is mentioned, and it's mentioned about the coming of Christ, it means that when Christ comes... The opportunity to be delivered from destruction, eternal damnation is over. The line has been drawn and it cannot be crossed. When Christ comes, he comes as judge and as one who delivers those who are already his own. So again, I'm not trying to get into a pre-argument of a particular position. I'm just saying, do not hang your doctrinal hat on half of a verse that doesn't meet, doesn't carry the weight of, of an entire doctrinal perspective. The fact is, the wrath to come is about eternal separation and destruction. That's how Christ used that word wrath whenever in Matthew 24. And that's the way Paul's using it here. It wouldn't even make sense that our eternal God would actually say, you need to be delivered from temporal wrath. He talks about eternal wrath of eternal separation from an eternal and holy and glorious God. So yes, we should, pr we should pray and preach about what a person is saved to, but we do have to offer warning of what a person is saved from. And friend, what you are saved from if you come to Christ, you are saved from eternally being separated from God, the Creator, and you will live in eternal condemnation 
separated from that holy and good God. And there will be torment day and night forever. Now, I know that sounds sounds fantastical. I know that sounds like maybe hell, fire, and brimstone kind of preaching. But we just believe what all of the scripture has to say. Christ bore that wrath for you if you will place your faith in him. When Christ bore the wrath and the scourge of of people, when he was beaten, bruised, and then murdered on the cross, he was executed bearing the wrath of God for sin that we cannot bear on our own except to be eternally separated from him in hell. We all were there. No one was born okay. So if you will come to faith and believe that Christ lived the perfect life that God demands that you've never lived because we've all sinned, that he died a death that we deserved and bore a wrath that we could not stand to bear unless we reject him, and then it's going to have to be for eternity because he's eternal. We live in a future hope, and our hope is a deliverance to a glorious and marvelous Christ and out of and away from eternal damnation and wrath. Guys, I just want to encourage you with these things that even though I know this is heavy, we are delivered for a final salvation in Christ. And that's our hope at the second advent, that we look forward to his coming. We look forward to him coming. And then he says, again, coming back to full circle where we began, in a sense, in verse 11. Because living in future hope means that we're not on an island doing that. We're actually living in future hope together. You remember what verse 11 says? It says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Again, he's, he's writing this to the church at Thessalonica. So, Milford Bible, we are to encourage one another with the return of Christ for all the appropriate purposes in that, for all of the biblically revealed promises in that, for us to heighten our awareness of needing to be evangelistic and share with those around us because the wrath to come, eternal damnation and destruction is real and it's horrifying. But also counter to that is how glorious the presence of our God and King will be for all of eternity. And that we want our friends and our family to share in that. So let's remind each other of the gospel. Let's encourage each other even with his return. But let's not be divided over some of the particulars. Let's make sure that we let the scriptures keep us elevated to the level that it says we are to remind each other of his coming. And that's not to argue over timelines. That is actually to exhort and encourage one another with the fact that he is coming. And that brings us hope. That brings us comfort in those who have already died, like my father this year and and others, good friends, largely related to COVID. We've all tasted death in ways that is a little, it feels a little more universal than, than most of our lives prior to now. So we don't have grief as those who are hopeless. Let's encourage each other with that. But it doesn't make us cavalier because we're still here. We're still waiting. When we see terrible things go on, even pandemics, there to be reminders that, guys, don't be surprised. If anything else, we are one day closer to his coming. Let's live as those waiting for his coming. Not sitting on our hands, but actually in missional living, in holy living, out in the world, 
and then coming together as frequently as we possibly can to encourage and exhort one another to live just that way. But these one another's exist for a reason, and this is part of it, for us to look at the second advent. As surely as we would gather and talk about the first one, let's talk about the second one, and let's encourage each other as we have even this day to live in such a way that gives him glory and honor and spurs us on to live holy lives, concern for the lost, burden for the lost, and wanting to share the gospel with the lost with great concern and vigor. And let's remind each other of these things over and over and over again. Well, again, I hate it absolutely not being with you today, but I pray that you are, you are blessed and this is a benefit and it's edifying to our church. And by God's grace, I pray that uh, you know we'll see you next week and just uh, pray for one another, care for one another, and again, remember to encourage and build one another up with these truths. And um, yeah, may God bless you and keep you. Thank you.